Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. Heavenly Father, open up our ears this morning as we hear your words. Give us the, the assistance and the ministry and the comfort of the Holy Spirit to receive and understand and digest what we hear this morning out of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. This is crazy. So I have as many people in front of me as I have behind me and more people up there. So I don't know where I'm supposed to look when I'm preaching, but you guys give me tons of feedback, please. Um, Again, I'm Scott. If I've not met you, if you're tuning in for the first time with us, welcome. We're on Monroe Street in Edgewood High right now in a brand new space. It's super exciting. Um, One of the major headlines these days is the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and immediately that makes things political. But if I can, all politics and emotions aside, um, it's been fascinating to watch this because it has forced America to debate and argue and talk about Christianity, because she's a Christian. Um, Of course, all politicians claim some faith for their image, and it's typically Catholicism or some type of mainline Protestantism. Um, Biden's Catholic, Trump is mainline Protestant, or sorry, Presbyterian Protestant. And on both sides of the aisle, this is the type of denominational affiliation that helps. It bolsters your image, right? But it doesn't interfere too much. But Amy Coney Barrett, I think, scares people because At least it seems to people that she's a different kind of Catholic. Uh, And if you follow it along, there are things in her Catholic faith about gender and life that definitely freak people out. But one of the things that freaks people out the most is that she's charismatic. And I've loved watching people just melt down over this. Uh, They don't know what to do it what to do with that. And so uh, journalists and political pundits uh, basically just lump her in with like snake handlers in The Handmaid's Tale because they have no other way to process it. Whatever you're feeling when I talk about that and that dynamic, I actually want you to bring that to this story in the Gospels this morning because the same dynamic is happening. Um, We've had two weeks off while I was on paternity leave welcoming our new son, baby Bo. Yay. But before that, we were in a series uh, at the end of Jesus' life in the gospel, or in the gospel of Matthew, um, where he's having this massive showdown in the temple with all the cultural leaders in Jerusalem during Holy Week before he dies. So think of a press conference, think of a Senate hearing. You honestly could not have a better context in your mind. And everyone is trying to get him with gotcha questions. And at this point, Several people have hopped in the ring and done their best. We've had the Pharisees and the Herodians and the scribes and the elders of the people who have all given it their best shot. But there's been one group of people kind of sitting in the bleachers, watching everybody else get owned, thinking, oh, I'm going to be up next, and we have what it takes to take this guy on. And that is the Sadducees, or if you're from the South, the Sadducees. (laughs) Don't say that. Um, And now it's the Sadducees' turn to hop in the ring. This comes immediately after the taxes question, uh, if you remember from two weeks ago. And if there were sound effects in the Bible, when the Sadducees walk up, you should hear ding, 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 you know, let's get ready to rumble. And then they come in. Okay, who are the Sadducees? The Sadducees are the sophisticated, wealthy, elite ruling class of Judaism. They aren't the largest or kind of the most population 
populist, sorry, sect of Judaism. That's the Pharisees. But they hold the halls of power. They're the priestly class. So for instance, Caiaphas, the high priest, was a Sadducee. And as the Jewish aristocracy, they're more pro-Rome than the Pharisees. And they love and they're in touch with Greek and Hellenistic culture. So they're very cultured. They're well-to-do. They present the type of Judaism that was acceptable to the Roman and Hellenistic elite. And so, as one scholar I read this week says, they're like first century Episcopalians. (laughs) We're Anglicans, so that has its own indictment on us as well. Um, They read the Jerusalem version of the New Yorker the Jerusalem, whatever you would call it. Uh, On weekends, they play polo with Roman officials, right? If the Pharisees have a megachurch on the outside of town that's packed and they're preaching fire and brimstone, the Sadducees have the beautiful cathedral right next to the capital downtown, First United Sadducees. Uh, There might not be as many people, but they're all really wealthy and powerful, okay? You get the picture. And there were two things that distinguished the theology of the Sadducees from the rest of people in Judaism at that day. One was they had a minimalist approach to the Bible. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, called the Pentateuch, as legitimate. So all the other prophetic literature, all the other histories and stuff, they didn't see as authoritative. The other thing was that which the Bible actually tells us in the gospel reading this morning is that they denied the resurrection. They were like, all that stuff is mumbo-jumbo. And not only that, they didn't believe in angels or demons or any of that stuff. They were like, that's ridiculous. They thought of that as like Judean, Appalachia, sneak-handling Judaism. It wasn't as refined as them, right? And it's fascinating how similar this is to the type of Christianity that makes it to the top of our halls of power. The higher you go, the more gets shaved off Christianity. And actually, the same two ways. So first of all, Christianity gets more minimalistic. People are like, Revelation is weird, we don't believe in that. Paul's kind of weird, and he doesn't seem modern sometimes, so we don't like him. Only the Gospels are legit. Only actually certain parts of what Jesus says in the Gospels are legit. And also, the Bible gets demythologized, which is actually a word that people use, where really smart people read, and they're like, exorcisms, that like didn't actually happen, that doesn't happen. Resurrection, that did not happen for sure. And what gets left is basically moral lessons, a rich history, a rich example of oppressed people myth-making to help them process their experience. But none of the mumbo-jumbo is real. Okay, that's the background to these guys who hop up because they're like, oh, we're about to own Jesus. Let's see what happens when they hop in the ring, okay? Turn with me to Matthew 22, verse 23. Uh, If you have a Bible at home, I'd encourage you to get it. If you've got a Bible here, you can look it up. If not, you have your bulletin. Please open up to it with me. Verse 23, Matthew 22. The same day Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. Doesn't it sound like the beginning of a knock-knock joke or like a horse walked into a bar, like a riddle. It's literally kind of like that. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, and the third, down to the seventh. Rough life um, in this family. After them, all the women, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Okay, the actual question 
is about the law of liverite marriage from Deuteronomy 25. And I know all of you are really passionate about that law in that chapter of the Bible. Just kidding. That was a joke. Basically, there was this law which was meant to protect wives. It was meant to protect women. And it was also meant to protect and stop brothers from killing each other to get their inheritances. Uh, that if a brother died, his brother had to perpetuate his name and his inheritance with his wife. It was a good law. And they're saying, hey, if a wife had married seven brothers in the resurrection, who would she be married to? Now, that's the question, but they aren't asking to actually find out the answer to this question, okay? This is a ridiculous gotcha question of the highest order. It's basically, in the first century, can God build a rock too big to lift it. I legitimately had a kid in middle school ask me that because he knew I was from a Christian family, and I was like, I don't know. You know, it's that kind of question. Um, it is only intended to trap Jesus intellectually, to mock his belief in the resurrection, and in the process to publicly shame him. Remember, these guys don't even believe in the resurrection, so they're chuckling as they're asking it to him, like, ask him the the question about the seven brothers, you know? They think they found this glitch in the resurrection software where if a woman has multiple husbands, the afterlife's gonna be this hilariously nightmarish soap opera, you know? Notice the confidence in the question. Notice the kind of the smugness, superiority, condescension. You guys feeling those things? It's pretty thick. Amen, my people? All right, how does Jesus parry it? me at verse uh, 29. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus doesn't flinch under their condescension or their trick question. He's not embarrassed at all. In fact, he takes his gloves off and he immediately puts his foot down. He immediately says, you're wrong, which in Greek means you have wandered way off. You are way off the right path. And what have they wandered off from? Two things. Did you notice it? The scriptures and the power of God. When he says scriptures, he's talking about the Hebrew Bible, of course, the Old Testament. And when he says the power of God, Jesus is talking about God's miraculous works in actual life, in actual history. And Jesus is saying, for all your cultural and intellectual superiority, you have no idea what you're talking about. And then he goes on to clarify the scriptures and the power of God. So look with me at verse 30. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Amazing. Now, what's going on with Jesus' answer here? Amazingly, he actually does answer their ridiculous question about marriage. Um, and his little aside comment here that we are neither given or received in marriage in heaven is absolutely revolutionary for our Christian understanding of marriage and relationships and humanity and sexuality and Christian hope. It is so rich and so deep. 
But please forgive me, I'm not going to go into that bit of this today. I'm so sorry for two reasons. One is I'm trying to preach shorter sermons in these services. (laughs) And the second is, remember, that wasn't the real thing that the Sadducees were doing in this situation. Uh, The marriage question for the Sadducees was just the Trojan horse. The deeper thing was making fun of his belief in the resurrection. And it's kind of that bit about the scriptures and the power of God in the resurrection that I want to focus on in this. So is that okay if we hold off the marriage aspect of this until later? Yeah? Okay, thank you. Two simple points I want to leave you with, and that's the main thing I want us to see. Two simple points. Number one, Jesus is not embarrassed by Scripture or the supernatural, and neither should we. Amen? Listen, oh you Madisonians, my brothers and sisters, I'm one as well. We live in a very intellectual and culturally elite city. Jesus is not embarrassed by Scripture or by the supernatural, and neither should we. To be proud of the full scope of Scripture And to believe in the afterlife and angels and demons and judgment and resurrection in today's world is seen as flat earth, opiate of the people, cringeworthy. And I know this because I wear a collar around town and it gets impressed upon me. I feel it. And this makes us want to be timid, right? Makes us embarrassed. It makes us want to shave things off our faith so that we have a version of Christianity that we can present to the world that is acceptable tolerable, even potentially laudable from the world, right? But Jesus is not embarrassed. He clings. He fights immediately against these guys who have extreme social capital. And he says, you have no idea what you're talking about. Don't you love that? (laughs) Scripture and the power of God. Those are the two things he brings up. Look at what Jesus does with Scripture. Look at verse 31 with me. This is an amazing, amazing verse that I have blown by my whole life but never really notice how epic it is. Verse 31. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Okay? This verse is like a keyhole into into Jesus' theology of the Bible. He's about to quote Exodus 3, but he says what was said to you by God when he reads Exodus. So Jesus is saying that Exodus... One of the books of Moses is actually spoken by God. It's his words. Isn't that fascinating? The Sadducees, if you look early up in our passage, said Moses said. Jesus flips it and says God said. Isn't that interesting? There's a lot there. And not only that, he says that Exodus, even though it was written hundreds of years before Jesus' time, he says was spoken by God to who? You. So it wasn't just a historical document written by God. It's something that has continued relevance. So do you see how just in his little answer, he's elevating scripture and he's relating it in a really unique way. And notice how closely and intently Jesus studies the Bible. If you have ever wondered why do Christians spend so much time studying the Bible, just look at this. He's going to prove that the resurrection is real by preaching a little sermonette on verb tense. (laughs) Did you get that? On verb tense of God's revelation at the burning bush that Michael read earlier. God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, but now he's dead. Jesus says, notice, what does he say? I am the God of Abraham. 
And through that, he's going to show, so look, even at the burning bush, God is proclaiming the resurrection. If Jesus had that high view of a scripture, if he took it this seriously and studied it this closely, shouldn't we? Um, man, Jesus loves the scriptures. He also does the same thing with the supernatural and the eternal. Basically, Jesus says, no, even though you might want to make fun of the resurrection and you think it's ridiculous mumbo-jumbo, it's all real. Jesus is extremely serious in his response. He unequivocally affirms his belief in the afterlife and the resurrection, and I love it. Just for fun, he throws in a bit about angels. Don't you love that? They didn't say anything about angels, but he did back because he knows they don't believe in angels either. <laughs> it's amazing. Our Western culture, brothers and sisters, is utterly blind in so many ways to the spiritual nature of our world. Amen? We are a very, very woke city. We, are, we love to think we're a woke city, at least. Um, but we are not woke when it comes to the spiritual realm, to principalities and authorities and powers. We're not. And part of this is because the spiritual forces of our world has blinded us from it, which is something that the Bible says. Some of you may know the great quote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And so it is with us. But not Jesus, right? Jesus battled the demonic his entire ministry, and he tasted and received and ministered in and lived from the power of God. So when these kind of bougie, smug Sadducees come up and want to mock him for it, he snaps back and says, you're wrong. You have no idea what you're talking about. That's the end of their conversation. And who looks foolish at the end of it? Who's the one who's ignorant? It's the Sadducees, right? So here's, here's what we need to feel from this. And again, there's so much rich theology here that we just don't have time. We're not going to get into all of it. But just for this morning, really simply, for those of us, we live in Madison, Wisconsin. Do we take the supernatural and the afterlife as seriously as Jesus do we take the resurrection and judgment seriously? Or are we embarrassed by it? Um, a generation ago, mid-20th century, the church's favorite evangelism question was, if you died tonight, do you know where you would go? And when you hear that, you hear somebody like, you know, in a suit in the 50s, like, if you died tonight, do you know where you'd go? You know, um, And my generation has loved to critique that question because we grew up with it because it's simplistic and it comes with loads of pressure and it feels trite and all of that criticism is true. Um, but we've stopped speaking that way because of that. We no longer ask those questions of the world anymore. You know what questions we ask? Not really any. As I've thought about this, can I just say, and this is super uncool for a 30-something pastor to say, I think we kind of need to start asking those questions again. Amen? Thank you. To ourselves first, to ourselves first, and then to others. The world mocks and downplays the afterlife and judgment and the resurrection. It mocks it. Jesus spent large swaths of his ministry trying to get people to grapple with the fact that judgment and the afterlife and the resurrection are real and coming sooner than you and I expect.
here's the second thing I want you to see from this. First thing, Jesus isn't embarrassed by this stuff. We should not be either, okay? Second thing, you can be the smartest person in the world. You can have the most social and cultural capital in the world and not know the scriptures or the power of God. This is right here at the front of this, in this passage with this dynamic with the Sadducees, and it is very indicting to us. We are a culturally and intellectually elite city and an elite nation and an amazing time in our world. We are extremely privileged. We're extremely knowledgeable. We have so much at our disposal, but that doesn't mean we can know the scriptures of the power of God just because we've read a ton. When Jesus says no, know the scriptures, know the power of God. You cannot know the scriptures in the way that Jesus is talking about simply by reading, <laughs> right? Or by becoming an expert in theology. You can even be, yes, a preacher like me and not know the scriptures or the power of God because these guys studied it way more than you and I ever will. And that gives me a holy and righteous fear. Does that not give you chills? to think that these guys somehow missed it? Likewise, you cannot know the power of God and share in his resurrection and drink of his eternal living water by any means that we possess. Amen? There's no Hogwarts for that, right? God will not be manipulated. So how do you get it? How do you get it? You don't have to pass through some cultic process where like the mystery of the wisdom of God is downloaded into you. Christianity is not Scientology. Here's the gospel this morning. The wisdom and the power of God are on offer. In fact, they're free and they're yours for the having, whether you're here or you're watching from the live stream, this morning, God wants to give you and wants you to live in and taste the wisdom and the power of God. But how do you get it? How do you get the power of God? The Bible is crystal clear. Weakness. The power of God is perfected in weakness. It's manifested when we come to terms with our human limitations, with our own vanity. Wow. And do you know how all the treasures of spiritual insight and wisdom blossom in your life? how they just unfurl in your heart. The Bible is really clear. Through the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. If that sounds weird, listen to this. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, and listen to the two things Paul says here, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, <laughs> and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Likewise, in the same gospel that we're studying this morning, after Jesus talks about judgment, he says this, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to who? Little children. And Jesus goes on to say, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So here's the challenge from God's word this morning. Our faith, what we believe, makes us utterly weird and mockable in the world's eyes. Always has. Always will. Because we believe in and submit to the Holy Scriptures in their entirety. We're not embarrassed by it. And in the supernatural power of God and in the spiritual world. And the only way we arrive at the wisdom and the power of God is becoming, like Jesus says, like a little child. If you're listening this morning and you're not a Christian, whether you're here or you're on the live stream, and you long to know the scriptures and the power of God, you long to receive what Jesus is offering, this is how you come to Jesus. Like a child, we confess our weaknesses. Our sins and our pride, we acknowledge we cannot save ourselves, and we actually need his help and we ask for his power. Like a child, we lay down the idea that we are wise in our own eyes and know everything. It's hard to do. We open ourselves up to the wisdom of Jesus and the cross. We ask for his forgiveness. And as you do that, I've had the blessed opportunity to kind of turn to Jesus myself and also be in that journey with other people. And at first, it's always going to look to the people around you in your life. It's always going to look like weakness and foolishness when you do that. But let me encourage you, that's okay. Because that's the same thing they thought about Jesus. And to an extent, they're right. Repenting and believing in the gospel is admitting we're weak and foolish in some ways, and we need God. But the great truth is that everyone is weak and foolish by themselves, left alone. And so the real ignorance is being blind to that fact. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.